Well, let's bow for a word of prayer once again as we open the Word of God together. Father, we thank You that we can come to this moment where we can pray just what that song said, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Lord, help us to see Christ for who He is. Help us to understand Christ for who He is. Help us to understand ourselves and our own hearts and the reality that without Christ we are nothing. May we see Christ this day. Open our hearts to that end. Help us to know You more that we might live for You to Your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, Amen. Take your Bibles this morning with me and open them to our study of the Gospel of Luke. We are returning once again to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And we are answering the question, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? It doesn't seem like that should be too difficult of a question for anyone to answer, and yet in our day it seems to be the case that to answer that question, people have all kinds of things to say. Much like the foolish answers we hear today in our secular world about how to define one's gender or what a woman is. That seems to be an easy answer to give, especially for those who have an intellect beyond that of a newborn infant. But foolishness knows no bounds in our heart and in the world without Christ, and mental insanity seems to be on display every day before our eyes in our own world. Well, sadly, it is no different within what is known to be evangelicalism in our day. Even the term evangelical or the term evangelicalism has been hijacked and That term now encompasses, at least in the minds of many, those who don't even believe in Jesus Christ. You are known to be an evangelical even if you are in some kind of religion that denies that Christ ever existed or that denies Christ altogether. In other words, any religion at all can now be termed as evangelical in our world. And since that's the case... That shows us, at least by way of implication, how important it is to be able to clearly say what a Christian is. As I told us last Lord's Day, as two men approached my house over the last couple weeks to chat with me about having a happy life and finding out what it means to know God, they wanted nothing to do with the deity and the reality of Jesus Christ. They wanted to say that they were Christian when in fact they were not Christian at all. Well, this is what Luke chapter 6 is about. Jesus is defining clearly what a Christian is and what it means to live out as a Christian in the world. Jesus has proven without contradiction that He is divine. No one in their right thinking and right mind could, in any kind of intellectual, honest argument, claim that Jesus Christ isn't divine. He has exercised His divine authority in all kinds of ways, most notably through accomplishing the miraculous before the people. Instantaneously, as the crowds were with Him, Jesus has been healing the sick He has been making the lame walk. He has been making the blind see, the mute to speak. He has even taken those who were possessed by demons and removed the demons from them, and the demons did exactly what He commanded. All of that, of course, authenticating what He has spoken concerning Himself and concerning the kingdom of God, that He is the king, that he is the one who is bringing into 
fruition, the kingdom of God. He's the one who has the authority. He has the authority not only over disease and sickness and all the things of nature, but most importantly, he has the authority to forgive sin. It is he and he alone who is the one who can meet man's greatest need. He acts with authority. He speaks with authority. He is the one who has authority, and people have come to hear Him. That's what it says in chapter 6, verse 18. They have gathered to hear Him. And on this particular occasion, Jesus has removed for the crowd any physical obstacle that they might have a tendency to use as an excuse to not follow Him in faith. There isn't one person in this crowd who can honestly say, I cannot follow Jesus because I have some kind of physical limitation. In fact, the crowd is already willing to forego the daily practice of life, just the normal routine of life, just to be around Jesus, because being in the proximity of Jesus Christ might bring them some kind of temporary help. Notice in verse 19, it says all the multitude are trying to touch him because power was coming from him and healing all of them. So they had a desire, like many even today, a desire to be in the presence of Jesus, to be in close proximity to Jesus. They are like many today who think that proximity to Jesus or proximity to the church or proximity in relationship to those other Christians will make them somehow spiritually well. Let's go hang around at the church. Let's go hang around with other Christians. Let's get in that group because in that group there is a sense in which I myself can find some kind of spiritual cleansing. I like to refer to these kinds of people as proximity Christians. Some may be true Christians, and those who are true Christians may in fact be just misunderstanding what it means to grow in Christ, what it means to walk obediently in Christ. They've they've never had someone come alongside them and disciple them, and they need discipleship in their life. Not as if the Holy Spirit has failed them, but they haven't gone to God even through His Word in their life, and so they are Christians, but they lack maturity. Others, however, are not Christians at all. They simply believe that being attached to the things of Jesus is enough. They've convinced themselves that being in proximity to Jesus and the things that Jesus does makes one a true follower of Jesus. Many in the crowd are like that. A great throng of people have come to hear Jesus. And so beginning here in verse 20 of chapter 6, Jesus turns to the disciples, those who were probably closest to Him, who followed Him on a regular basis, as much as the rest of the crowd who would have been labeled as disciples, because that's just the term, means someone who's following Christ. That doesn't necessarily mean someone who's a Christian. That just means someone who hangs around. And so beginning here in verse 20 of chapter 6, Jesus begins to define what it means. And He starts with a revealing contrast. The contrast between those who are deemed blessed by God and those who are cursed and will endure an eternal and final judgment in eternity. He says, blessed are the poor, hungry, crying, hated people, and cursed are the rich, well-fed, laughing, and liked people. So here are two groups. And make no mistake about it, there are only two groups. 
There is no middle group. There is no group in some kind of neutral zone in the middle that is sitting there waiting to see which group they might choose. There are only two options, and all people are in one of them. Poor, hungry, crying, and hated, or rich, well-fed, laughing, and liked. Those are the two groups. We sit here this morning, if... Those were all we knew of the two groups, just those titles. Poor, hated, crying, and hate, uh, poor, hungry, crying, and hated, or rich, well fed, laughing, and liked. If those are the only two groups we know of, and that's all we knew of those two groups, <clears throat> and you and I had a choice, which one would we choose? Which one would we choose to be in? Of course, that's a hypothetical question because none of us get the choice. Why? Because all of us are in the cursed group before God saves. That is why Jesus says in chapter 5, I came to save sinners. I came to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's the beginning of how one enters into the blessed group. Jesus calls you to Himself. In other words, God opens your spiritual eyes to your need for a Savior who can deal with your sin problem. And so, a Christian is first and foremost a repenter of sin. This is where Jesus begins in verse 20. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are you who are poor. We've studied this already in previous weeks, and so we know what he means. We know he means blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking about economics. He's not talking about material goods. He's not talking about any of those things. He's talking about internal rather than external. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The parallel passage in Matthew 5 clearly declares that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That is simply to say that a Christian is one who has come to Jesus Christ totally bankrupt of self. Utterly bankrupt of their own spiritual effort to save themselves. They know out of the gate that they have no ability in and of themselves to enter into a righteous relationship with God through their own efforts. They are destitute of self-effort. Destitute of gaining righteousness through their personal attempts. Or in spirit, as the begging tax gatherer of Luke chapter 18, verse 13, where he says this before God as he begs God for mercy, be merciful to me, The sinner, that man was not economically poor, but he was bankrupt of spirit. He's saying to God, this is what I am. I am the sinner. I have nothing to offer you. I have no hope in and of my own self. I am poor in spirit. I know it. And if you do not pardon me of my sin debt, if you do not take care of what I owe so greatly to you by my offense to you through my sinfulness, then I will perish under your just wrath. Those who are poor in spirit are blessed in that the kingdom of God is theirs. What he says, verse 20, blessed are you who are poor because or for yours is the kingdom of God. Why is theirs the kingdom of God? Because in being broken in spirit, in God's calling you, in your repentance of sin, you have then the king of the kingdom. Without the king, you have no kingdom. It's meaningless to have the kingdom of God if there is no king. This is the reason I asked those two gentlemen that day why they would want to inherit the earth if they did not know that Jesus is God. Who would be the king of the kingdom? 
Besides the fact that neither one of them were Jews. Neither one were going to be part of the 144,000 that they were hoping they were going to be a part of because neither one of them could, were Jews. And the man audaciously said to me, well, one of the tribes wasn't a Jewish tribe. Which I had to shake my head at. Without a king, you have no kingdom. And since those who believe in Jesus Christ, who is the king, since that's the case, they have the kingdom. This is why God himself would declare that here. Blessed are you who are poor. Why? Because yours is the kingdom of God. So what is a Christian? A Christian is those who are poor in spirit. Secondly, what is a Christian? A Christian is, the, is one who is hungry, verse 21 tells us. Blessed are you who, are, who hunger now. Blessed are you who hunger now. Matthew's gospel is helpful once again for us in gathering the full extent of what Jesus is saying here. Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is an after-salvation reality of life for everyone who is in the kingdom of God. Why? Because before salvation, before God calls us to Himself, before there's any repentance in our heart, no one seeks after God. You may have thought that in your Christianity, if you sit here today knowing Jesus Christ by faith, you may have thought in and of yourselves that you were the one who sought after God, and yet it was God all along drawing you to Himself. It was not you seeking God. You wouldn't want anything to do with God. In fact, you didn't want anything to do with God. It was God who had to draw you to Himself. Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 clearly tell us that. It's a quote of Psalm 14. Paul is just simply quoting the Old Testament. This has been around since God began. People like to say, well, Jesus in the New Testament is different than the God of the Old Testament. No, He is not. Paul quoting from Psalm 14, he says, There is none righteous, in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. I'm not a brilliant man. But it's not hard to understand that that is very exclusive. That is exclusively universal. In other words, it's exclusive. There isn't one who isn't like this, and it's universal to all of us. We are all like that before God draws us to Himself. Not one of us seeks after God, but once saved, once a Christian, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Why? Because in Christ, in Jesus Christ, in the relationship with Christ, our spiritual desires and needs are sufficiently met. We have all we need for life and for godliness in Jesus Christ. In other words, God satisfies continually and God satisfies completely. And so the satisfaction lies not in what we get, but in who God is. Let me say that again. The satisfaction of our hunger and thirsting for righteousness is not in what we get. The satisfaction in our hungering and thirsting for righteousness is in who God is. He is the perfect, unfailing satisfaction for our every need. And so as we hunger and as we stay hungry for righteousness, He continually satisfies. One commentator said it this way. I think it's helpful for us. He said, quote, We are blessed just because our hunger continues. We are blessed in the simple fact that our hunger continues. He went on to say, For if we should cease, Jesus could no longer call us blessed because He could then no, not fill us anymore. 
In other words, within our hunger is this symbiotic relationship between us and Christ, whereby when we are hungry, Christ continues to fill us. It reminds us of John 15. As we remain in the vine, we are continually receiving from Christ. Jesus said, if you do not remain in me, you can do nothing. It is impossible for you to do anything. We must be receiving. So Jesus says... The Christian is one who hungers for me. What is a Christian? Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are hungering for righteousness. They're the ones that are satisfied. And third, blessed are those who weep now. Verse 21. Blessed are those who weep now. Weep is the original word clio. It literally means an audible cry. An audible cry. An attitude, really, of mourning. An attitude of, of weeping. A Christian is one who mourns. That's how Matthew's Gospel puts it. A Christian is one who mourns. This is the attitude of the Christian. What is a What is the Christian crying over, some may ask? What is the Christian mourning over? Why would it be a blessing as a Christian to be one who is weeping? Most people cry for escape. Most people cry in order to be out of a circumstance that is unpleasant, some circumstance that's troublesome to them. In our world, we are hearing more and more cries. Cries for freedom. Cries for all kinds of things that might be helpful to our life. We hear cries for reparations from all kinds of people. Cries for acknowledgement. Cries for being seen as somebody. Many, just two weeks ago, were crying for the wind and the rain to stop in Florida. I've been there. I've voice those kinds of cries. Certain kinds of crying and sorrow are common to all kinds of people. Death brings sorrow. Defeat and discouragement can bring sorrow. But the sorrow that Jesus is talking about here, the the weeping that He is talking about, the kind that defines a Christian is beyond any of those mentioned. It's beyond any of those that I just talked about. Death and discouragement and circumstances and things that affect us by way of our physical life. It's beyond any of that. What Jesus is talking about is a sorrow that brings about repentance. A sorrow that produces in our own heart a desire to turn from Sin. It is a sorrow over the grief of sin. The Apostle Paul mentioned this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. He says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. So there's sorrow on both sides. There's sorrow in both camps. There's sorrow in the blessed camp. There's sorrow in the cursed camp. And yet the outcome of that sorrow is two vastly different realities. One is salvation and the other is destruction. The sorrow that Jesus Christ is talking about is the sorrow of Godliness. It is a godly sorrow. It is the kind of sorrow that brings growth in the spiritual life. It is the kind of sorrow that is wrought in the heart by God. Sorrow over sin that leads to repentance. You may have noticed in Paul's words as I read them in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 that godly sorrow is linked to that reality. It is linked to repentance. Repentance is always linked to sin. 
Repentance is always linked to sin. Anything that isn't linked with sin is just regret. It is outward reformation. It is behavioral change, but it isn't repentance. Repentance is always attached to sin. So those who are poor in spirit, they're the ones who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness, and they are also the ones who are mourning over sin. This is a Christian. That is simply to say that once you are saved by Christ, once you are a Christian, we as Christians never lose the sense that in ourselves nothing good dwells apart from Christ. That in us there is no good except by means of Christ. So spiritual bankruptcy leads to these continual cries for cleansing. This deep, heartfelt grief over sin. And notice, notice that the blessing isn't in the act of mourning over sin. Blessed are you who weep now. The, the, the blessing doesn't come because there's this act of mourning over sin. No, the blessing comes in what God does with the sin. That's why it says, for you shall laugh. It doesn't seem to make much sense that, that if I'm mourning over sin, I'll be laughing. And yet, when you realize what God does with your sins, there's a sense in which there's a real joy of laughter in your heart. It's almost an external chuckle in joy of what God has done. That God, through, through my confession and through my understanding of my own sin and my turning from sin and my weeping over sin, there is a, a sense of laughter and joy in my heart because of what God has done with my sin. So spiritual bankruptcy leads to a continual cry for cleansing. Just listen to the words once again of David that I read this morning. Psalm 32, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David's life was filled with all kinds of sorrows. Family sorrows, relational sorrows, national sorrows. He felt death in his heart. He, he sensed the reality of death in the nation of Israel, the death of others, the loss of relationship. There were economic upheavals for his kingdom. There were downturns for his kingdom as he saw God working. They were all the same things common to all people. But nothing broke his heart more than his own sin. David sensed no greater grief than when he saw how he had offended the Lord by his sin. You see, sometimes when we see our sin, when we realize our sin, we are, we are incensed by our sin because how it may have acted by us, how we have, might have engaged ourselves in it toward other people, and surely true, that ought to sadden us. Anytime our sin is lashing out at others by way of word and deed and attitude, it ought, to, it ought to sadden us in our heart. And yet the greatest grief that we ought to have isn't necessarily how it's affected other people, but how it has offended God. When we realize how much our sin has offended God, we will begin to see it as we ought to see it, and we will turn from it. It's easy for us to think that we have gone to someone and said, oh, I'm sorry I hurt you. I'm sorry I offended you. I'm sorry I did some kind of thing to you. I said this to you, or I had this attitude against you, and yet we don't realize the reality of how that has offended God. How our sin has ever offended God. Because that's where the sin first occurred. The reason that we acted toward one another in the way that we acted toward one another was simply not because we just willy-nilly sinned, but first we forgot our relationship with God. 
because the Bible clearly tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So when you do not love your neighbor as yourself, you surely have not loved God as you ought. And so our sin has highly offended Him more than it has ever in any kind of way offended our neighbor. David sensed no greater grief in his own life than that. And that is when David knew the deepest blessing of God because he knew his sin was forgiven by God. The world says, oh, listen, muster up your energy. Bring yourself up by your own bootstraps. Put on a happy face. Pretend. Pretend you don't have any troubles in life. Pretend your life is good. Pretend that everything's going well. Hide it and you'll be happy. The church has bought that philosophy almost lock, stock, and barrel in our day and age within evangelicalism. They live by that same trade. And yet God says, confess your sins. Cry over your sins because godly sorrow brings repentance. And with repentance comes forgiveness. And until sin is forgiven, blessedness is kept away. Evangelicalism today is filled with a whole lot of hiding of sin. A whole lot of laughing now, as it says down in verse 25, woe to you who laugh now. Don't laugh now, mourning over sin. Where's that? Woe to you who laugh now. Oh, there is great joy in the Lord, but it's not a cheap joy, beloved. There is great joy in mourning over sin, but it isn't cheap. It comes through the tears of godly sorrow. Godly sorrow. James said it this way, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. What James is speaking to is those who in verse 26 or 25 who are laughing now, who see no reason to mourn over sin, who just go on with life as if nothing has offended God at all who have attached themselves by proximity to the things of Jesus, those who claim to know Jesus and yet aren't living as if they know Jesus at all. They're just laughing and going through life as if sin is meaningless. The day of mourning is coming. It's a sobering reality to understand that the Christian who is one who is constantly broken over their sin but that's the heart of a Christian, one who constantly is going before the Lord and constantly in this reality of knowing your sinfulness before God. And the longer you walk with Christ, the more you see your sin and the more you see the grace of God that continues to forgive it. Is it any wonder that the, Jesus would say, for you shall laugh. Oh, you laugh. Crying over sin doesn't mean that you and I just melt in a pool of despair. That's not what he's saying. No, sorrow over sin simply tells us that the Christian life is a constant battle to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. It's a constant war against the sinful desires of seeking self rather than following after Christ. And where you see yourself foolishly going after the things of the flesh, you must also then realize it's an offense to God to do that and turn from it. And there you find the greatest of joy. There we find the way of victory. And the way of victory is always through Jesus Christ. 
always through Jesus Christ. It comes no other way. And that while victory in Christ is a secure reality, that how blessed is he whom God does not impute iniquity, because that iniquity has been imputed to Christ. There is victory over sin in Christ. We must know also that we, at every moment of our life and every day, must be submissive to obedience to Christ, fighting against the desires of the flesh. Jesus says, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Pronoun there, you. When he says, blessed are you, that's an emphatic. It means only those who weep will be laughing. Again, there's this delineation between the two groups. Only those who mourn will be laughing. Those who are laughing they will be weeping. Only those who mourn now will have this expressed joy. For what? What are they joyful about? Because you know of forgiveness. Let's listen to the psalmist. Psalm 30, verse 1 and following. The psalmist says, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have lifted me up and have not let my enemies rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have kept me alive that I would not go down to the pit. So sing praise to the Lord, you godly ones, and give thanks to His holy name, for His anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. This is what Jesus is talking about. Psalm 28, verse 7. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in Him and I am helped. Therefore, my heart rejoices and with my song I shall thank Him. That's the joy He's talking about. The joy of knowing the forgiveness of God even though there is sin. Nothing makes the sorrowful heart more happy than to know the Lord's forgiveness. We cannot know of that kind of joy too much. We cannot know that kind of joy too much because without that kind of joy, there is no hope. There is no hope. Notice for a moment back in Proverbs, men and I have been studying Proverbs in our Bible study. We've really barely got off the starting gate, even though we've spent so much time here already. In Proverbs 1, it says to those who are laughing now because they do not cry over their sin, it says this, I will laugh at your calamity, verse 26. I will even laugh at your calamity. The context is this. Wisdom is there. Wisdom is calling, i.e. God himself and his words. He is shouting in the streets. He's lifting up his voice in the square. He's at the head of the noisy places, all the confusion that's going on. God is there and he's crying. So at the entrance of the most the places where people go and saying, How long, O naive ones, will you love simplicity? That's just a nice way of saying, How long are you going to be stupid? Scoffers delight themselves in scoffing, and fools hate knowledge. So turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my Spirit upon you. I will make my words known to you. Because I called you, however, and you refused, I stretched out my hand and no one paid attention and you neglected all my counsel and did not want my reproof, then I will even laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. 
when it comes like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come on you, then you'll call to me, but I'm not going to answer. You're going to seek me diligently, but you're not going to find me. Why? Because you hated knowledge and you did not choose the fear of the Lord. You wanted nothing to do with me. You wanted to have nothing to do with a life that I said was the blessed life. Those that mourn over sin, you wanted nothing to do with that. You didn't want to listen to that wisdom. You didn't want to come when you were called. And so guess what? When you do call, it will only be a day of mourning. That's exactly what Jesus is saying in verse 25. You laugh now, your day of mourning and weeping is coming. What is a Christian? Christian is those who are poor, hungry, crying. There's one final contrast made between the blessed and the cursed. It's probably the most difficult. Why? Because whereas the first three talk about the Christian as the Christian sees himself, poor in spirit, hungry for Christ's righteousness, mourning over their own sin. The last one shows how the world looks at the Christian. This is how the laughing, rich, well-fed, liked ones look at the poor, hungry, crying Jesus says, verse 22, Blessed are you when men hate you, ostracize you, cast insults at you, spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's how the world sees the Christian. That's the view of the world for the believer. We don't have time to get into it. But I want to ask us a question this morning. How does one know if they have godly sorrow? How does one know if they have godly sorrow? Well, I'll say this. Ask yourself. Do I see myself as a sinner before God? Do I see myself as a sinner before God because Jesus said I came to call sinners to repentance? So are you sensitive to sin? You see, if you take sin lightly, if you are enjoying your sin, even in little ways, then you have to wonder as to whether you have godly sorrow. To play as if righteousness is yours when you have no sensitivity to sin, well, that is what the hypocrites do. But the blessed are those who sorrow for their sin. Their concern For their sin is how it has offended God and His glory. Not the grief that it might bring to their life and to their reputation. Their greater concern is the relationship with God and them rather than themselves and the world. And if we grieve over our sin then we will also grieve over the sins of other Christians. When we see sin happening, we will grieve in our hearts that sin is happening, much like our Savior wept over the sins of the people. And with humility, we will, like Galatians 6.1 commands of us, we will go to one another in humility and confront sin when it is known. And we will not, for our own self-preservation and our own self-seeking, just say, well, I'll just let that pass aside. I'll just go along when it's a sin that must be dealt with. There are times when we 
overlook things for the sake of love. And yet we must deal with sin. We grieve over our own sin. We grieve over the sin of others, but we also grieve over the sin of the world. We know of the forgiveness of sin in our own heart, in our own life. Why would we not want to let the world know about that? Why would we want to withhold that kind of information from others? What is a Christian? A Christian is a person who knows they have no righteousness of their own before God. They cannot come to God on their own merits and their own standards and say, God, you must love me because after all, I was a good person my whole life. I gave to such and such. I did these things. I'm better than this person. Look, I didn't do any of those kinds of heinous acts. No, a Christian is a person who knows they have no righteousness of their own before God. They are spiritually destitute. And therefore, because of that, they they then Knowing Jesus Christ, having repented of their sin, they are hungering for righteousness to be in their life, to be reflected in their life. This is the character of their life, a desire to live for Christ. And because of that desire for righteousness, therefore, they are crying out on a regular basis to God about their sin, the sin they know of, and asking God to reveal the sin they do not know of. And God gives them the kingdom of God. He is complete fulfillment. He is the fullness of joy in their life. And that is the reality of a Christian. They know forgiveness. And they have joy. You have to ask yourself, do you have His peace? Do you have His joy in your life? Do you have His divine comfort knowing His forgiveness is yours? If not, you can today. Surely amongst us there are some who do not know Christ. Surely amongst us there are those who are here by way of proximity. They want to be close. They're here because maybe maybe some of you young people, your parents said, you, you, you must come with us. Well, the reason they tell you you must come because they want you to know Jesus Christ and you have sat there your whole life and maybe heard this over and over and over again, much like I did as a young child, hearing the gospel hundreds of times and yet always rejecting it, thinking, thinking because I believed intellectually in Jesus that I was a Christian. Never really going to God, never repenting of my sin, thinking in a categorical way, in a proximity kind of way, Jesus died for sin, and since I think that and believe that, I'm good to go. But I never believed He died for my sin. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you realize that and you realize that God has allowed you to live this, these coming years even with that in your own mind, in your own heart, and He has not yet judged you to the fullest extent. Do you realize the Bible says it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? It's the kindness of God. Realize who you are before a holy judge and that God would allow you in Christ the opportunity to have your sin forgiven. How do you do that? Repent. Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent and believe because He came for sinners. He came for sinners. Happy, happy are those who are poor, hungry, crying, and hated. We'll get to that next time. Let's pray. Father, your word is so opposite from how the world thinks. So opposite from how the world defines life. Our world is quickly becoming a place where 
how I feel becomes the definition of who I am. Comes my identity. Whatever I feel in the moment, that's who I am. And others must acknowledge that in me. They must define me by that or I'm not happy. We know that is just a lie of Satan. And it's the same lie he'd said in the garden. Surely has not God said. It's just different wrappings, different, different bows on the different packaging. It's all the same lie. But you are not confused by any of that. It does not hinder you in one way at all. Why? Because the power of salvation, you have said, is the gospel. The gospel tells us about Jesus Christ. It tells us about who we are as man. It it pulls the veil back from the illusion and the definition that Satan throws on humanity and tells us exactly who we are before a holy God. And says, if you will repent, turn to me, I'll forgive your sin. Lord, that promise is as good today as it ever has been. So we pray. We pray that you would help us who know you to be mindful of our sin. To turn from it. To run to you knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive. Because Christ is sufficient for it all. For those who do not know you, Lord, we pray We pray that you would open their eyes, for we know that our words are meaningless without your power. Our words accomplish nothing. It is you who does it all. And so we pray that you would accomplish your purposes in their heart. We pray that their heart has been tilled to receive the seed of the gospel. That they would be like that soil in Matthew 13, where it would grow fruit. Lord, thank you for your kindness which has drawn us to you, giving us faith that we might repent of sin, turn to you. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Without him, we have no hope. Lord, may that message go far and wide in a hopeless world that they would turn to you and know real life. We'll pray this. In Christ's name, and give you all the glory for the results. All God's people said, Amen.